Well, good morning. Keep your Bible open, would you, to this passage out of Matthew's Gospel, where we have been uh, for the month of Advent. We were in the first two chapters of Matthew's Gospel. If you were with us during the Advent season, as I mentioned, during the Advent season, we're going to continue on after Advent in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3 last week, the beginning part, and the end of chapter 3 this week, and we're just going to continue to march our way through the Gospel of Matthew through the end of June, tracking with the life and ministry of Jesus as it's presented in Matthew's Gospel. This morning, the passage that was just read for us, we want to root this morning's message, of course, in the passage just read for us, and we're going to touch on a theme that I suspect everybody in the room is going to be interested in. And it is the theme of identity, identity, your own identity, your sense of self, of who you are and what you should think about yourself, identity. In my view, the question of identity is perhaps the defining issue and question of our time, our cultural moment here in the 21st century. It is, I think, the defining issue, figuring out who we are as human beings, or or better, what we are as human beings, it seems to me that is the defining issue of our time in the 21st century, and for good reason. Because so much in our lives flows from kind of organically our sense of who we are, our identity. What we make of ourselves drives and determines how we live, how we act, what we think, how we treat others flows from identity. The interesting thing is identity is a big issue not only for Christians but for non-Christians. It's not as though Christians are the only people that talk about identity. I mean, just take a look at the culture around us. We see that it is the defining issue everyone is talking about, either explicitly or implicitly, identity, identity, identity. It is the defining issue of our day for both Christians and non-Christians. The difference, it seems to me, between Christians and non-Christians is that Christians have certain resources they can go to to help. They're thinking about identity. We have, of course, the Bible, which as Christians we believe is God's word to us about all of life, about indeed all of reality, including ourselves. So we go to the Bible, of course, to define who we are. What does the Bible say about who we are, our identity? As Christians, we want to be biblical in the way we think of our identity. We want want to have a biblical sense of self, a biblical identity. But we go to the Bible, let me put it this way, we go to the Bible not for the Bible's sake. We go to the Bible, you might say, for God's sake. Because the Bible tells us what God says. And so as we want to have a biblical self-understanding, an understanding of who we are, a biblical identity, we also want to have a God-centered sense of self, a God-centered identity. But here's an interesting little wrinkle I want you to think about. We can't know what God thinks about us without first knowing what God thinks about Jesus. Jesus Christ is the revelation of God the Father. You want to know God the Father, you know Him through and in the person of Jesus. There is no true knowledge of God 
apart from knowledge of Christ. So check it out. There can be no true knowledge of ourselves, no, no true knowledge that like hooks up with reality, like capital R, reality. There's no true knowledge of ourselves apart from knowing Christ. Which means our identity, yes, needs to be biblical, yes, needs to be God-centered. It means our identity must also be Christ-centered. It needs to be rooted in Christ's identity. Who is Christ? What does God think of Jesus? And then let us couple our identity with Christ's identity, root our identity in Christ's identity, a Christ-centered identity. That's what, believe it or not, this passage, it was just read for us, is going to help us do. To cultivate a Christ-centered sense of self. Now, for some of you, that might strike you as a curious thing because you look at the passage, you're like, that doesn't say anything about us. It's all about Jesus, not about you and me. It's a passage that reveals to us as clearly as anywhere else in the Bible what God the Father thinks of Jesus Christ, His Son. But this, you see, is precisely where our sense of self should always begin, please hear me on this, with deep reflection on the person of Christ. You want to know who you are? Take a look at Jesus and reflect deeply on the person of Christ and let that shape your sense of who you are. Who is Jesus? And what does the Father think about the Son, Jesus Christ? And when you've grappled with those questions, only then are you able to answer the question, what does God think of me? Who is Christ? And then, who am I? And what I like about this passage, take a look with me at verses 13, 14, and 15 of our passage. What I like about this passage is, check it out, we are given very unique access to what God thinks of Jesus. Perhaps clearer than anywhere else in the Bible. Elsewhere in the Gospel of Matthew, as we've seen in the opening two chapters, as we looked at them during the season of Advent, we learn a lot about what a lot of other people think about Jesus. We learn what Joseph thinks about Jesus. The wise men think about Jesus, what Herod, the rascal, thinks about Jesus. Angels think about Jesus. But here, at the end of chapter 3, we get crystal clear communication from on high, as it were, about who Jesus is. Straight from, you might say, the horse's mouth, or, or to put it more faithfully in light of verse 17, take a look at verse 17, we get a voice from heaven telling us who this Jesus is in very plain terms there in verse 17. But interestingly, of course, you can tell the passage doesn't begin with what God thinks of Jesus. Where does it begin? Verses 13, 14, 15. It begins with what John thinks about Jesus. You know, John the Baptist. Not as in John the Southern Baptist, right? Like John the Habaptizone, right? The, the baptizing one. John the baptizer would be a better, maybe a better translation of his name, not John who goes to the Southern Baptist Church down the street. John, the one who his ministry is defined by baptizing people. 
This voice of one crying in the wilderness, lift your eyes up to verse 3, crying in the wilderness, herald, this announcer declaring the arrival of Messiah, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. He's out there declaring in the wilderness. He's got a pretty interesting ministry going on, right? I mean, he's got some weird clothing he's wearing. He's eating some weird food, and, and he's having a powerful, powerful ministry, and people are responding in droves to the ministry of John the baptizer, the baptizing one. He's the most popular preacher in town. He doesn't even have a podcast, right? And he's so popular, even Jesus of Nazareth knows about his ministry. And so Jesus, we're not told like why exactly, what was going on in Jesus' head. He said, I think I'm going to go see John now, right, or timing of it. But Jesus, verse 13, Jesus comes from Galilee. Look at verse 13. Jesus comes from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Jesus decides to come down to the Jordan, believe it or not, to be baptized by John along with everyone else. And you'll notice John's response. This is one of these charming sort of interactions in the Gospel of Matthew when John sees Jesus standing. I envision John is up to his waist in the Jordan River. He's baptizing one person after the next, after the next, after the next. And he lifts his eyes up, and there is Jesus on the banks of the Jordan River coming into the water. Matthew doesn't tell us how he knows that Jesus is, is Jesus, Right? Not just another one of the folks, but it's Jesus. We don't know. Matthew doesn't tell us how he knows that. But when he sees Jesus, he is what? He is incredulous. He's gobsmacked. He's bamboozled. He can't believe it. What is Jesus doing coming down into the waters of baptism with all the other sinners confessing their sins? In fact, look at verse 14. I love this. If, Matthew, if, if, if John had his druthers, right? If he had his druthers, he wouldn't dream of baptizing Jesus. As he says, verse 14, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? I mean, imagine you go to the hospital for open heart surgery, and as you're laying on the table, the surgeon hands you the scalpel and says, actually, could you give a triple bypass to me? Right? Flabbergasted. Bamboozled, gobsmacked. Jesus, though, check it out, he sees things a little differently, doesn't he? In fact, from Jesus' perspective, everything's going according to script and according to plan, right? This is, Jesus says, verse 15, look there, answers him, let it, I love this, let it be so now. I just would have loved to have heard the sound of that as they're exchanging. Jesus comes into the water, and here's John in the water, baptizing, sends one person off with a high five. Delilah has been baptized. And then Jesus comes in, and John's like, huh? Uh, oh, we should turn this around. And just imagine Jesus. No, John, let it be so now. With a kind of godlike authority. Definitive. The moment is here. Why? For it is fitting, John, Jesus says, to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus doesn't need to confess sins. That's not why he's going into the waters. 
Jesus goes into the waters to identify with all the sinners. That's why he's going into the waters. The fulfilling of righteousness is not for Jesus to get a clean conscience by confessing his sins. It is to take on the yoke of humanity in our fallenness and sinfulness. That's why. And so see, in light of Advent in the first two chapters, the stunning thing that Matthew is doing here in this, this beautiful picture of Jesus immersing himself in the waters of baptism to identify with us in our fallen condition, even as the Son of God takes on human flesh, immerses himself in the realities of humanity to share our burdens, so in the waters in the Jordan River. Stunning. Amazing the way Matthew paints this picture for us. And so we see in the opening three verses, 13, 14, and 15, what John thinks of Jesus. And what he thinks of Jesus is what we ought to think of Jesus, is what Matthew's gospel is trying to persuade us all of to think about Jesus, which is, he's the one. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the coming one. He's the Lord. He's the Savior. He's the sovereign one over history. He's the one that should be baptizing John, not be baptized by John. And yet, take a look at our passage. We have two more verses there, verses 16 and 17. The story doesn't end with the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River, with John in this little exchange and interaction, because Matthew, the gospel writer's main interest is not in what John thinks about Jesus, it's in what God thinks about Jesus. And we see what God thinks about Jesus in verses 16 and 17. Two verses describing the event or the occasion of Jesus' baptism. And I suspect that Jesus' baptism, in terms of the mechanics of it, was like anyone else's baptism that day or any day prior or following, which is, goes into the water, goes under the water, comes out of the water, and leaves the water, like anyone else's. Except two things happen. Verse 16, the heavens open up, look at verse 16, the heavens open up, and the Spirit descends upon Jesus. And then verse 17, the second thing happens. As the heavens are opened up, like the door to heaven is opened up, a voice is heard from heaven. Do you not love, we, we said the Belgic Confession, this marvelous celebration of the Trinitarian nature of God, which is the distinguishing thing of the Christian faith. It is what makes us authentically and genuinely Christian. We sing that, and then that lovely song that is a meditation and musing on the Trinitarian nature of God. And then right here in this little baptism passage, we have this delightful interaction between the Trinity. Father, Spirit, and Son and water. <laughs> this Bible's no joke, by the way. That's a good time, this Bible, I promise you. I mean, it's just amazing. By the way, this Christianity wasn't sort of like invented in the, in the 7th century. So people just got carried away and figured they got like a pull a fast one on humanity. 
the beauty of all of this sort of embedded in the scriptures, incredible, incredible, incredible. And where was I in my sermon? That was a tangent. <laughs> yes, two events. Two events. That help us see the identity of Jesus, the one, the spirit descending, the second, the voice from heaven. One, presence of God. Two, praise from God. Take a look at verse 16, the presence of God defining the identity of Jesus, verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately, like, now, check it out, this really important thing happens. Immediately, he comes up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. Main emphasis of that little verse is at the end. Not with the descending like a dove bit, although that's interesting. I'm like, what does that look like, right? I mean, doves are kind of pretty, but doves can also fly away, right? The main emphasis is there at the end of verse 16. It's this, coming to rest on him. The abiding nature of God's presence with Jesus. The Spirit descends like a dove and rests upon him, doesn't glance him by the side, doesn't brush him on the arm, it rests on him, it doesn't go away, the spirit doesn't go away, the spirit stays, the spirit is permanent, the spirit is abiding, the spirit is fixed, solid, forever, forever. Right here at the start of Jesus' public ministry, very important for all the gospel writers, they do this a little bit differently, Luke chapter 4 does it a little differently, Jesus is reading in the synagogue, To begin his ministry, he opens up the scroll, the Isaiah scroll, unfurls it to where it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, has anointed me to preach the gospel. But the spirit in connection with Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, super important in the gospel writers. It is a mistake to think that Jesus is running around, as we see him in the Gospels, portrayed to us in the Gospels, running around, doing miracles and all this kind of stuff, drawing on his deity and his power to do this stuff. He's not Superman in that sense. Like human guys until like a bus is going to go off a bridge and then bang, out he comes as the man of steel. It's not an overstatement to say that Everything Jesus does through his life, in his life and earthly ministry is done, check it out, by and through the Spirit of God. Try that on. That might be a new hypothesis for you. Try that on and see if you can find that work itself out as you read the Gospels. I think it's true. The presence of God defining for the ministry of Jesus, but listen, Even more importantly, the presence of God through his spirit is defining for the identity of Jesus. The identity of Jesus. God's presence with Jesus is a clear affirmation of Jesus' identity as God's own beloved son. They're intertwined. That's why Jesus can say in John's gospel, I and the Father are one. Or why he can say... In John's gospel again, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. What what is going on with Jesus there? I think what's going on is the Trinitarian dynamic. The Father and the Son are one through and in the Spirit, the presence 
of the Spirit, a clear affirmation of the identity of the Son. Now, check it out. This is the cool thing. You go to the end of Matthew's gospel. You go to the closing words of Jesus to his disciples. Something very interesting Jesus says. He says this, very last sentence of Matthew's gospel, very last words of Jesus to his disciples. He's been crucified. He's been buried. He's been raised. He's getting ready to ascend back to the Father's right hand. And he says to his disciples, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The presence of God rests on his people. But in light of the resurrection of Christ, now it is the presence of Christ that rests on his people. The presence of Jesus by the Spirit descends now upon his people like a dove and rests upon them. To understand the Spirit's presence in your life rightly is to understand the Spirit as the Spirit of the risen Christ. It's now Jesus who says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Not the Spirit is going to be with you always to the end of the age, though, of course, that's true. The Spirit is the representation of the very identity of Jesus, abiding, permanent, forever, and may I even say, even when we do not feel like He's present. After the first service, there were some folks I prayed with who are having a hard time feeling like God is present. No doubt in a room this size, there are some of you who are feeling very acutely like God is not present. But Jesus says to you, I am with you always. Even when you don't feel it, I am with you always. His presence. And so you see, Matthew, the gospel writer, tells us something important about what God thinks about Jesus here in verse 16. When he tells us that God gives to Jesus his presence, the Spirit, to rest on Jesus. It tells us something very important about the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? But of course, verse 16 is not the end of the passage. Interestingly, you might even say that the presence of God with Jesus through the Spirit isn't the climax of the passage. What is the climax of the passage? What's well, there in verse 17? Look there. When God gives... Presence in verse 16, but God gives in verse 17 his praise, his praise. What does God the Father think of God the Son? Answer, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Beloved and delight. That's what the Father thinks of the Son. Beloved and delight. Captured there in this voice from heaven in verse 17, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. You may be interested to know that that little expression, you are my beloved son, with, you are my beloved son with, in, with whom I am well pleased, you might be interested to know that what's happening there is actually some echoes 
of earlier passages in the Bible. Do you realize that? Two passages from the Old Testament. The gospel writers often do this. They describe the story of Jesus and his life and his teaching, but, but often if we kind of scratch the surface and see below the surface, we see that there's all kinds of Old Testament biblical passages that are underneath what the gospel writers are saying about who Jesus is. They're trying to, of course, connect Jesus, his life and his ministry to the Old Testament. And if we were to scratch verse 17 a little bit and, and dig a little bit underneath it, we would go to two places in the Old Testament that I think shed powerful light on what it is God is saying in praising His Son here at His Son's baptism. The first passage, check it out, it's from Isaiah chapter 42, where God is speaking to the people of Israel. And God is saying that he's going to raise up and send a servant, a servant who will faithfully do his will on behalf of his people. So Isaiah chapter 42 verse 1 says this. You can hear the echoes even in the English translations. Behold my servant, God says, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Matthew echoing that language from Isaiah about the servant. Matthew also echoing the language of a passage even farther back in the Bible, Genesis chapter 22, which may even get more to the point there. What's going on in Genesis chapter 22 is God is describing to Abraham his relationship with his own son, Isaac. Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, he says this, and here an echo again, take your son, he says to Abraham, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Matthew wanting us to hear these echoes of earlier scriptures here in verse 17 when we hear God and this voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There ought to be little lights going off. Genesis chapter 22, Isaiah chapter 42. But not just the language, but the context. And what's going on in the context of both of these passages? That Matthew wants to shape the way we see the identity of Jesus here at his baptism. What's going on in these two contexts? Genesis chapter 22, what's happening there? Well, it draws us back not simply to the close relationship between Abraham and his son Isaac, but to God's calling Abraham to give up his own son as a sacrifice. Could it be, could it be that Matthew already here at the end of chapter 3, with Jesus' baptism, the start of his ministry, is pointing us to the end and culmination of Jesus' ministry when God the Father is going to have to give up this precious son on the cross as a sacrifice? I think that's exactly what he's doing. I think that's exactly what he's doing because of the echo of Isaiah 42 as well. What's going on in Isaiah 42? Well, there God is talking, yes, about the servant he's going to send who's going to faithfully discharge his will on behalf of God for the sake of his people. But there you have this servant in Isaiah who is not just any old servant. He is the suffering servant. He is the one who will suffer for his people in Isaiah to bring them both healing 
and redemption. And so you see what Matthew's doing here. Verse 17, as, as the voice from heaven is praising Jesus, as Jesus is being praised by the Father at his baptism, this is the lamb to be slain. This is the son who is going to be led to slaughter. This is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 coming up out of the waters of baptism, hearing this, what can strike one as a kind of sentimental mush. Oh, I just love you, Jesus. Aren't you so special? Like, it can strike you that way. A whole lot more going on. Not sentimental mush, but pointing us to the suffering servant. That Isaiah, you may remember, describes so movingly in chapter 53 of the book of Isaiah. Surely, Isaiah says, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, the suffering servant here in the waters of baptism. And so you see, the Father's praise of the Son isn't just warm fuzzies without any grit. It's not like sentimental sauce with no meat. Being the beloved of the Father means suffering. It doesn't exclude suffering. It means and anticipates suffering. How can we have verse 17 in the same story about Jesus with all the chapters a little bit later on about the execution and crucifixion of Jesus? How does that work? Like, God loves the Son and is delighted with the Son, and the Son is going to be crucified. How do both realities exist in your life and mine? You see, suffering in the life of the Christian... It's not counter evidence to the fact that you are a son or daughter of God. It may be, check it out, proof that you're a child of God. Not counter evidence, the very evidence that you are beloved of God. And so I have a regular habit at the church of when someone will come up, either for pastoral counseling during the week or after service, this just happened about a month ago, after service, someone came up, maybe two months ago, someone came up to the service and shared with me the thrilling news that they had accepted Jesus and had taken communion and are trusting in Christ for the first time. And we celebrate, celebrate, rejoice, and high-fiving and hugs and all the rest of it. And then I say, well, let's pray together. Let's just celebrate and pray together. But can I just say one thing before we pray? I do this every time I talk with someone in this situation who's newly professed faith in Christ and is experiencing for the first time verse 17 of this passage that they are a beloved son or daughter in whom God is well pleased because they've just committed their life to Christ. This is awesome. Can I just share one thing? And I say the same thing every time. Your life's probably going to get harder before it gets easier. 
Because being a beloved son or daughter of God in whom the Father delights doesn't drive out the suffering. God uses the suffering to enhance our delight in God and God's ultimate delight in us. The fiery ordeal Peter talks about, chapter 1, through which we are going, that is refining our faith, verse 6 and 7 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter, the fiery trial we are going through that God is allowing us to go through, is working for us, Peter says, an incredible thing. What he says that's working for us is praise, glory, and honor at the judgment seat. Of Christ. Because in this life, you and I, we will not hear, I, I shouldn't say we will not, as though I can speak definitively about what God may or may not do. God can do, of course, what God wants to do. But let me put it this way. It's unlikely. It's unlikely we will hear the audible voice from heaven, this is my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. It's unlikely any of us are going to hear that audibly in this life. We will hear it when? On the day of judgment. But if we are baptized into Christ, all that is Christ's is ours. The inheritance, the intimacy and communion with God, and the praise. The praise. So that as you're feeling insecure in this life, which we all do. We all do. You're feeling unloved. You're feeling unwanted. You feel like nobody notices, nobody sees you. It is the, the, the act of faith to reach out and lay hold of your union and identity with Jesus in his baptism, his identity shaping your identity, this word of blessing on Jesus you taking onto yourself. So that when you're feeling... I don't know, like people don't want to be with you, but you don't even want to be with yourself. You lay hold of, by faith, the identity of Jesus as your identity. This is my beloved son, that you are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased, God says to you. He doesn't just tolerate you. He delights in you. He doesn't just put up with you. He rejoices with singing over you. All because of Jesus. In Jesus and through Jesus. God defines the identity of Jesus with his presence and with his praise. And that's not the end of the exciting stuff. The exciting bit as well is this. As we unite our lives to this Jesus of verse 16 and 17 by faith, as we do that by faith, all that is said of Jesus is said now of us. 
presence and praise. Presence, not just for a moment, but for eternity. So that Jesus can say to us this morning, to you this morning, to you, I am with you always. Even when you don't feel like it, I am with you always. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus is saying that to us. So that we can say, the Lord is my shepherd and I, I shall not want. He will cause me, make me to lie down in green pastures. He will lead me beside still waters. He will restore my soul. He will even lead me through the valley of the shadow of death. Like crucifixion even. His presence will be with me. And even amidst all of my enemies, when they're out to get me, he'll be with me. The table will be there. In fact, we'll be celebrating together in the midst of all these enemies in the wilderness. His presence isn't going anywhere in your life. If you're connected to Christ. His presence, and he also gives you his praise. So that what God says of Jesus is his baptism. He says of all those who are baptized into Jesus, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. Let that, brothers and sisters, wash over your soul this morning. If you are in Christ, God doesn't simply tolerate you. He delights in you. What does God think of you? How should you see yourself? What should be your sense of identity? How should Christians in the 21st century answer this most pressing question of who we are, what we are, what is our identity? Well, we ought to ask, what does God think of Jesus? Answer in two words, beloved and delight, beloved and delight. And that is who you are, brother or sister, in Christ and because of Christ. Amen? Father, thank you for giving us an anticipation in the life of Jesus, here at the baptism, a little bit later on in the transfiguration, an anticipation, beautiful, of what we will experience on the last day. To see the smile on your face, to sense your affirmation, not because we have earned or merited, but because we have been purchased through the shed blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and our lives are united to his life. But to hear a song in celebration over our heads by anticipation, by faith, that I am a beloved son of the Most High God, that, Father, you are well pleased in me because of Jesus. Give me, give all of us the grace, indeed the courage, the strength to lay hold of that truth by faith and to live and walk in light of that truth, driving out insecurity, driving out pettiness, encouraging and engendering Christ-like boldness and love and sacrifice and service.
And now as we go to the table, may you seal these truths on our hearts, in our lives. As we commune with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.